Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we have part two of our interview today with Bennett Cyphers from the EFF. Uh, so if you haven't uh, listened to part one, you should definitely go back and do that now. In part one, we had a really long discussion about all the different ways that we are identified as we move around, not just the web, actually, but around the real world. It's amazing because <laughs> it used to just be we had to worry about being tracked and online, and, and, and now they want to track us everywhere we go. So that's, you know, a lot of that is mobile tracking, your smartphone, and some of it's just straight up real world tracking with, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth beacons and uh, facial recognition, license plate readers, just amazing how many different ways they try to they try to track us. So anyway, so if you haven't heard that one already, I would definitely go back and listen to that. Today in part two, we're going to talk about the amazing economy behind all of this and all the kind of shadow players that most of us never see because they're all buying and selling and trading our information behind the scenes. And because in the U.S. we really don't have any regulations around this, there's just, it's just a free-for-all. And uh, it's just amazing. Uh, we're finally starting to get some legislation now that will uh, shine some light on this. So we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that today. And, of course, as always, I always like to, you know, go over what we can do about this sort of thing. And some of these things you've heard before. But nevertheless, it's, uh, there's some new ones, and it's always good to kind of cover our bases again. So... Uh, anyway, we're going to talk about that today with Bennett Cyphers. Uh, but before we do, Bennett and I um, kind of threw around some terms, quite a few actually, <laughs> that I wanted to uh, wanted to define before we get into it. So that when you come across them in, in the uh, the interview, in case you haven't heard them before, you'll know what we're talking about. Because we we were kind of going uh, kind of going fast and didn't stop and uh, to go back and define some of these. So in no particular order, these are just some terms I wrote down as I was doing my editing of the podcast. Uh, one is machine learning. Uh, this is usually talked about in the context of artificial intelligence. And really, it's nothing more than taking a whole bunch of data and shoving it through some computer algorithms to kind of analyze that data and look for patterns. And uh, with machine learning, you can basically train computer systems uh, to do certain things like recognize faces or recognize fingerprints or look for correlations and patterns in, in data when you throw in a whole bunch of human data, which could be great for things like, you know, medical research or looking for, you know, uh, prescriptions, drugs that might interact with each other in weird ways and stuff like that. So anyway, machine learning is just kind of the buzzword of the day. Um, but think of it as just as a, you know, kind of a AI system, a, an expert computer system. I also talk about JavaScript, which I've mentioned before, but it's basically the, the coding language uh, most used on the web. So JavaScript is what your web browser loads when it wants to do anything other than just show static text and static images. If it wants to do anything kind of fancy where stuff moves around or does some really pretty effects, you know, like, you know, you can move things around on, on your web page or things grow and shrink depending on how your how big your browser is. A lot of that stuff today is done with JavaScript. Uh, the trouble is, of course, since it's a coding language, you can also use that same language to code up malware uh, or have the web browser do things that you don't want it to do. And also JavaScript uh, allows that code. Uh, if you were running a JavaScript snippet in a web page, you have access to a lot of information about the, certainly about the browser and the computer um, and potentially about the user as well. So anyway, JavaScript, that's what that is. Uh, we talk about a Raspberry Pi and that's a really cool, uh, what they call a single board computer. And if you, you know, if you ever want to just kind of mess around with some coding or, you know, mess around with the Linux operating system and kind of come up with some fun projects, it's a really great little box. The whole thing's about as big as a, I don't know, like two decks of cards stacked on top of each other. The board itself is extremely small, but once you put a little case on it, it makes it a little bit bigger. And this thing is a full-fledged computer. Uh, all you need is a keyboard, mouse, and monitor. And it, it's a full computer. If you just really want a second computer for something that's cheap, and you can buy a Raspberry Pi board itself for like about 35 bucks. You know, once you get the power supply and the case uh, and a couple of those kind of things for it, it might go up to 60 bucks. Um, but that's pretty darn cheap. So, you know, maybe if you've got a kid who wants to kind of mess around with programming or something, uh, it, it's a great little box. And there's all sorts of fun projects around the web. And one of them we're going to talk about today in the show called a Pi Hole. Um, <laughs> it's called Pi Hole because it's based on Raspberry Pi. Uh, well, we'll get into it in the in the interview, but that we we make reference to it. And I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up of what that what we're talking about there. And real quick, a, a, couple, a few acronyms: uh, NDA uh, is a non disclosure agreement. It's usually a contract you sign when you're working with somebody, like maybe you're a consultant or something, and you're working for a company, and they don't want you to take away any of their intellectual property. So you sign a thing, an NDA, saying you know I'll work for you, but I won't give away any of your secrets. 
DNT. We make a passing reference to that. That's do not track. This is a web browser feature that was introduced many, many, many years ago with the idea being that, you know, you, the user could check this box saying, hey, please don't track me. And the hope was that advertisers and marketers would look at that and say, oh, okay, fine. He doesn't want to be tracked. I'll stop tracking him. But in, in practice, everybody just ignored it. Um, but there's some new things coming around that might revive the DNT flag as something that actually might have some usefulness. And of course, GDPR, which I've talked about many times, but it's a general data protection regulation. This is Europe's new privacy law, very all-encompassing privacy law that went into effect last May. And hopefully, you know, we're looking to have something similar to that here. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's the kind of privacy legislation that we could really use. All right. So I've got more to talk to you on the back end of this interview. So let's get into the interview uh, and then I'll tell you some more when it's all done. So without further ado, let's uh, get to the part two of my interview with Bennett Cyphers. We've spent a lot of time on the identifiers and, and, and how we're identified <laughs> and we've got so much more to cover. But so the, like the next phase of this and where it gets uh, is, I think, even really creepy is this. we've talked about how do we, how we get identified. But now... How is all this stuff being actually collected and used in the background? So let, let's get into, you know, we've talked about some of the tracking techniques, but, you know, how how is this really being aggregated? Like, what is the business behind this? Sure. In a word, ads. That's uh, mm-hmm. by far the biggest driver for all this tracking tech is behaviorally targeted advertising. Um, so companies want to want to see what you're doing, want to figure out what other people who look like you, whose behavior is similar to yours, have done in the past, and then use that to predict what you're going to do in the future. And mm. so they can show you ads that you are more likely to click on. And that's, that's it. That's the multi-billion dollar industry that's been driving the internet economy for the past two decades, unfortunately. And it's led to a lot of really creative technological innovations in order to track people better. So yeah, I'd say like the, the biggest... Um, tracking networks on the web, the companies that have the most trackers in the most different places are pretty much all ad tech companies. Um, and that's Google. Google is by far the biggest. Uh, Facebook is not, I wouldn't say a close second, but a dominant second. So it's, it's Google and Facebook are the two biggest digital ad purveyors in the world. And unsurprisingly, also the two biggest trackers, both on the web and in mobile apps. Um, and there's sort of a, a long tail of other companies that are associated with the ad tech ecosystem that also have presences on thousands of different websites and thousands of different apps. Um, well, well, I think that's, and that, and that's what I really want to get into because this is something I, I think a lot of people think, okay, yeah, they're tracking me because they want to show me ads and they want to show me more relevant ads. Right? There's all these euphemisms right, for you right. know, why this tracking is good for you. Right. Um, and why they're doing this for you. But what, what blew me away from the article, and this is what I want to kind of get into because I want people to understand is the, is how much machinery and business models and all these things that are behind this have become such a huge industry behind the scenes, behind these these one way mm-hmm. mirrors that we just don't know mm-hmm. about. Like we're going to, talk, I want to, you know, I want to get into real time bidding and what is an impression versus a conversion and and how are the how are these um, how are these ads you know shopped around in milliseconds to all these different buyers? Let, let's get into that. Explain to the people what is really going on behind the scenes when you and when you just see that ad that shows up on your webpage. So much has happened mm-hmm. behind the scenes. Go back behind the mirror. Tell us what's happening. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, real time bidding is this this system for deciding which ads get plopped onto your screen whenever, whether it's when you open a web page or open an app or whatever. Um, and so, like you said, as the, so the instant you load up a website, um, you see ads usually. Sometimes they load like a half second after other content on the page. Sometimes they change later on. But like you open a website, there's an ad there, right? Mm-hmm. What you don't realize, what a lot of people don't realize is that that ad wasn't served by the website it wasn't even Mm. served by the ad network or by google directly (laughs) it was served by an advertiser who bid through this auction on the right to show that specific ad on that specific website to you as an individual in a matter of milliseconds so every time you open a page every time you open a page or open an app there's this there's this it's called real-time bidding because the whole process this big complicated process involving dozens of different companies happens within a few milliseconds on these like really powerful computers with 
direct fiber connections to one another somewhere in the valley. And yeah, so this is, we tried to get into it in the paper. This is, it's kind of, <laughs> I, I'll, I can try and explain it at sort of a high level, but it's, it is really one of those things that's like, there, there's not a, a good succinct way to sum it up, I don't think, um, that does it justice. Because like right. at every layer of it, it's convoluted and <laughs> awful. <laughs> it's like, well, as I was reading it, what, what it struck me was, is it really seemed like high frequency stock trading. Yes. It was the the same kind of technologies and 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 cottage industries and niche mark or niche companies that have come along to focus on one particular thing it, it's all there with ad tech as well that yeah that's that's a really good parallel it's um yeah it's it's so the unit of measure in this in this economy is called is the impression so like when you visit a website that is an impression. It is one person's eyeballs on one web page <laughs> at one time. And these impressions are traded around at light speed, literally, by thousands of different companies. And they have all these different ways of valuing impressions and deciding which impressions they want to buy and how many and um, competing for the impressions. And yeah, it looks a lot like stock training, but they're, they're trading people's attention, the right to access people's eyeballs for a few seconds. Wow. So okay, so that an impression is is an ad. So they, they, that's when the web page comes up, and and they can reasonably be certain that I my eyeballs went across this mm -hmm. ad. What is a conversion? A conversion is basically when you click on an ad. Or so the, the, there are kind of different kinds of conversions. There's there's the conversion, the click through conversion, where you see an ad and you're like, oh, interesting. Or whoops, I meant to click on this link that's right below this ad, but I clicked on the ad by mistake. Um, <laughs> and then, so that's that's one kind of conversion. Uh, the more valuable kind of conversion is when you see an ad and then later you actually buy something from that company. So a lot of times they don't actually, the goal isn't actually to get you to click on that specific ad, it's to embed in your mind the idea that mm. you want this product and then like, I don't know, maybe a day later, you're like, oh, I want to buy this thing for my mother for <laughs> Christmas. And then you end up going to their site and buying it. And so that's that's a little more difficult to track sometimes. But um, in general, it's it's tracked using the same machinery that behavior is tracked. So it's like when you when you see that ad, that ad tech company gets to drop a cookie in your browser. And then if later on you visit the advertiser's uh, actual website and buy something, they're going to see those same cookies and be like, oh, I know that I showed you this ad two days ago. That means it worked. And, and that is the holy grail. I mean, that's the, the I was talking to the guy who uh, um, uh, the ad tech he used to be in the ad tech industry and he created this Winston privacy box, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in mm -hmm. a minute. Um, but, you know, the classic uh, what the classic saying in, in advertising is I spend 50% of my advertising money in the wrong place. The problem is I don't know which 50% that mm -hmm. is. And so, and so the real holy grail here is to be able to figure out which ads cause me to buy something or even which ads cause me to go to the website and think about buying something. So, you know, it is harder to make that tracking, but that is, that is really the, the, the crux of the whole mm -hmm. thing. And, and one of the things that just to drive this home that, that, that kind of really should creep you out and it creeps me out is Google being one of the biggest advertising companies on the planet has worked in the background with like credit card companies, Visa and, My and MasterCard to try to map ads that they were showing online to physical purchases you made not mm -hmm. too long in the future. Mm -hmm. Have you heard about that? I have heard about that. Yep. Yep. And they insist it's all very above board. They're not selling <laughs> data. <laughs> uh, they're not actually sharing their data with MasterCard and Visa. Thank God. Mm. I, that's uh, I'm being a little facetious there, but yeah, no. So Google, <laughs> Google has the ability through partnerships with banks and credit card companies and whoever to, to know that you saw this ad for this product. And then at some time in the future, you went and purchased something with a credit card at a brick and mortar store, right? You might not have even been carrying your smartphone, but they still know about it. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of like, that's another one of the sort of directions that these ad tech companies are innovating in is trying to to close all the loops like they don't want any loose right. threads of purchases where they can't account for an advertisement having led to that purchase so 
the other thing I'd like to talk about and, and get your get you to uh, talk to the audience a little bit about is the kinds of things that they care about. And uh, one of the things that kind of struck me in the article that that's a term I had not heard before is what is called an ocean score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like so, this tell us what an ocean score is and how this is used. Yeah, so an ocean score is what's called a psychographic, and it's, it's an acronym. It stands for the O is for openness, the C is for conscientiousness, the E is for extroversion. The A is for agreeableness and the N is for neuroticism, I think. And <laughs> yes, so, it is. So it's it's uh, each of these scores is like a, a number from zero to one or zero to 100 or whatever. And it's designed to like encode someone's personality in, in just five numbers. Um, and this is this is not an ad tech innovation. This goes back to like psychology in the mm. 60s. OK. Um, Myers-Briggs, all that kind of stuff. It's, exactly. Yes. It's, it's just a, kind of another version of the Myers-Briggs that uses different different axes. But the reason I wanted to talk about Ocean is because this is what this was Cambridge Analytica's secret sauce. Uh-huh. There was a paper a few years ago, back maybe maybe a decade ago, where some researchers went through and they gave a bunch of people psychological surveys that you take, just like a Myers-Briggs test to mm-hmm. kind of map your answers to an ocean score. So it's like, how do you feel about this? Like, what would you do in this situation? And the outcome is five different numbers. And some researchers were like, oh, I wonder if we can predict what a person's ocean scores are based on the things that they like on Facebook. Hmm. And so they went through and they got a bunch of volunteers and they like, were like, all right, show me all the things you've liked on Facebook and then take this test and let's see if we can figure out a correlation. And they did. They found it really strongly correlated. And hmm. it was like, People, these, these just, just using the things that people had liked on Facebook, researchers could predict what their ocean scores would be better than the people could themselves and better oh, than wow. their close friends could. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, that was out there. Cambridge Analytica saw that and they were like, ooh, interesting. <laughs> and, so, mm-hmm. and so they, they found a way to hoover up the, the data about the things that millions of people around the world had liked and then map create profiles for all of those people that mapped them onto this ocean spectrum. And so they had like this, this database of potential voters and how agreeable they were or how neurotic Mm. they were. And then they claimed to be able to use this to manipulate the voters using targeted ads into voting for uh, whichever candidate Mm. or cause their clients wanted. And the rest is unfortunate history. Um, But yeah, the, the point I wanted to make is that Cambridge Analytica weren't the only ones to do this. I mean, they they were like uncommonly kind of open and sleazy about it. Like the reason I think Cambridge Analytica made such a big splash is because they were just totally unapologetic and they gave all these like presentations to clients where yeah, they're like, right. oh, yeah, we will manipulate people for you. <laughs> but ad tech and the, the data broker industry, which we haven't talked about that much yet, is rife with these kinds of psychographic profiles of people. And they can use, it doesn't have to be Facebook likes, you can use browsing history, you can use location history, you can use all these other factors to generate psychographic scores, whether they be ocean scores or other like proprietary methods that these companies have to predict things like, oh, how willing is this person to take out a bad loan? Or (laughs) how willing is this person to like respond to a message that makes them angry rather than mm. one that makes them scared rather than one that makes them happy, you know? And, um, so there, there are tons of marketing companies and data broker companies that will sell profiles of people or use profiles of people to sell targeted advertisements based on these kinds of psychographics. Wow. So yeah, so you mentioned data breakers and that's, I think that's the last thing we have time for before we get into some remedies here. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, things we can actually do to push back on these things. So tell us about data, data brokers. How many are there? What are they doing? Are they all doing the same kind of things? Who are they selling to? Who are they selling, you know, buying from? Did, talk to us a little bit about the data broker industry and, and, and what's really going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So this is, um, I, I, I will talk a little bit about it, but I should point out that I'm not an expert in this. This is something I, I did a lot of the first uh, initial research on, mm-hmm. on data brokers for this white paper, just so I could write the kind of like two pages that we have there. Um, right. But a lot of other people have done a lot better research on this. Like Pam Dixon um, is a person who she's she had this great report a few years ago called The Scoring of America that mm. dove really deep into a lot of the, the practices that these companies have, including psychographic profiling and that kind of a thing. 
the other one is Wolfie Crystal's series at Cracked Labs on corporate surveillance. Mm-hmm. Dives into a lot of the data broker industry as well. But anyway, so but yeah, I'll put I'll put those in the show notes. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, these uh, data brokers are it's a it's a really vague term. Um, there there are tons and tons of different companies that buy and sell data um, for various purposes. There's some really big ones like Axiom, which has now split into Axiom and LiveRamp. Both of them do different kinds of data brokerage now. Um, a lot of the big credit companies like Equifax um, and Experian um, are also data brokers in addition to their credit mm-hmm. scoring things. And then there's this this whole kind of smaller cottage industry of brokers that buy and sell specific kinds of data or they act in like small slices of this this data selling pipeline um so like if you if you it's actually really easy to to find them if you just google for like like i spent time just like googling like buy email addresses um Mm. buy iot data buy (laughs) (laughs) buy auto data and a lot of times the first the top result on the google search is an ad that some data broker that specializes <laughs> in this thing has paid for it. and it's like oh get data fast like we have the most reliable data and wow how meta is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so yeah and so what the biggest one the biggest ones usually act as kind of like sinks for data so like uh, axiom live ramp and experian experience one i've i've read several of their marketing uh, marketing pdfs for they claim to have data on like 99 some crazy high percentile of mm-hmm. americans and yeah. like individual profiles of each american um and that's based on and so they're they're more in like the buying business they they their goal is to assemble these like really broad and deep profiles of as many people as they can by consuming data from like like transaction data that they get from supermarkets or credit cards browsing history data that they get from uh, third-party trackers. Um, some of them own their own third-party tracking companies on the web or in mobile. Like Oracle is another big data broker. Uh, mm-hmm. And they have they bought a company a few years ago called Blue Kai that is just pretty much all they do is like drop cookies on websites and, and <laughs> browsing history data. And so, yeah, the goal of these really big companies is to get data from as many different places as they can, assemble them into profiles, and derive psychographics um, and, like, categorize people. And so then they can resell services. They sell services, like, kind of service access to their data, where it's like, oh, do you want a list of people who are likely to, I don't know, buy this kind of thing? Or do you want, are you trying to target, like, expectant mothers in this Mm. income bracket? Like, we can help you. Um, Are you trying to sell a financial product to people who generally distrust banks. Oh, we can help you with that. So that's, that's sort of like where the data tends to end up. Um, but then a lot of the smaller companies will do things like they'll do really specific things. Like they'll, they'll partner with AT&T, for example, and buy the raw feeds of location data and then resell kind of curated feeds to other data brokers or to bounty hunters downstream. Um, or they'll, they'll just act in one specific area. Like they'll just all they do is collect lists of emails and then they resell those lists of emails, that kind of a thing. But again, yeah, there's, there's, it's really broad, really vast, really hard to get a handle on because you don't interact with these websites. Right. You, or you don't interact with these companies directly, hardly ever. There's a, there's a great new law in the state of Vermont that is yeah, the yeah. first one of its kind to actually require data brokers to register with the state. It's, I mean, there are some problems with the law. It's, it's, not clear what the penalties are if the data brokers right. just lie, but <laughs> right. But already there's like 130 data brokers registered with the state, mm-hmm. and Fast Company did a really good article where they dug into that data and like talked about what they learned about all these random companies. And um, I think some other journalists have gone and like tried to buy data from some of those brokers or tried to opt out and just like documented um, what the process is like. Yeah, just I mean transparency. I mean, just it, we don't even have that, and so just yeah. just I'm so I'm, I'm very interested to see what comes out of this because it, it, this is all going on, like you said, behind the mirrors, and we don't see what's going on. And there's a huge, huge industry of this, and I think I just people I don't think understand. I, I saw yeah. an article a year or year and a half ago that was saying that there's 2,500 to 4,000 data brokers in the U.S. alone, and that I'm wow. sure by now it's gotten it's yeah. even gotten up. It, and the other aspect, and you mentioned this too, is 
kind of like with Cambridge Analytica and, and with the location thing is there's all these handoffs, you know, so someone says, well, you can have access to my data and you can buy bulk access to my data through this, you know, automated API. There's no humans involved. Your computers could talk to my computers. Mm -hmm. You sign this contract and somewhere in the contract says, well, you promise pinky swear that you won't do anything bad. You won't won't violate this, but there's no enforcement of those things. There's no enforcement. Yeah. 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 And that's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think you said we're going to talk about remedies next, but yes, this is the biggest problem is like all these big companies that collect and share data. They're like, Oh yeah, well we have terms of service that say that you can't do anything bad after we share the data. But it's like, what happens if you violate the terms of service? You get kicked off the platform, maybe. Right. <laughs> like, or how do you how do you even know that they violated the terms? How do you even know exactly? Like, is Facebook? I mean, Facebook does every once in a while. They'll be like, "Oh, we found this company that was doing something really bad, and we kicked them off." But it is not in Facebook's interest to <laughs> right. be constantly reporting that thousands of companies are violating their terms of service, right? <laughs> right? Like, that's bad for Facebook's business, right? So you know, it's it's uh, yeah, that's there's no consequences. No real consequences, no no real incentive for enforcement. There was that uh, situation recently where there was over a billion different user records that somebody found on the web just sitting there without a password protection on some website somewhere. Oh and, my gosh, I think I and, missed that. And they uh, and they found, you know, they, by looking at the data, they kind of figured out that it probably came from this one data company. But uh-huh. the data company said that wasn't our server. So the, the, the only spec, they couldn't figure out whose data it was. But the speculation basically is somebody bought that data through them through some contract they paid for them. They got all this data. And yeah. then they just put it on the server somewhere and didn't protect it. But, and so the the original <laughs> yeah, data yeah, company's yeah. like, it's not my fault, you know. We, yeah. you know, that they didn't protect it. But you know, that's what happens. So, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, we've talked a lot about what's going on behind the scenes and how this is done. So now, what can I do about this? Let's get into some remedies and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll walk through the categories, kind of like you talked about. We talk about the web and mobile, and then right, real world. So starting with the web, what? If, if if I'm properly freaked out now <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, my God, what can I do to dial this back? What yeah. what could people do? First, you got to decide how how much inconvenience are you willing mm-hmm. to put up? Yeah, because mm-hmm. the gold standard for privacy is Tor browser. That's mm-hmm. um, designed from the ground up by a nonprofit to be as private as technically possible. And I mean, it's not perfect. Like there are if your adversary is the NSA or right. like some kind of authoritarian government that has a lot right. of resources, you might still be in danger even when you're using Tor. But if we're talking about like average companies that are just trying to make a buck off you, Tor is going to protect you. It's going to make it so inconvenient for them to track you that it's not worth their time. And this is this is a browser you could download, right? It's, like, yeah, it's yeah. actually based on Firefox, right? It's based on Firefox. I think the Firefox team works on it. And sometimes Firefox actually like the people on the tour team will create these new like privacy preserving techniques to like counter this or that tracking technique. And Mm -hmm. then Firefox will be like, Oh, that's cool. And they pull it into Firefox. And so mm -hmm. Firefox has actually really benefited from a lot of the innovation that tour is doing. But yeah, so it's, it's a browser. You can go download it. It's free. Um, and it acts sort of like a crowdsourced VPN. Mm. So it hides your IP address as well as blocking cookies and blocking fingerprinting and all this other stuff. Because of the way it works and what's going on under the hood, it's a little bit slow um, because the way it works is like your traffic is routed. It's encrypted and then routed through like three different people's computers around the world. And so at the end of that, when it comes out on the other side, like whoever's whichever website you're visiting doesn't even know what country you're in. Right. It's kind of like the classic spy movie thing, like, you know, where we're trying to track this guy, but he's bouncing his IP address yeah, off exactly. all these different he's servers. behind it's... six proxies. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's what Tor does. Um, it's And it makes it really easy to work with. But as a result, your traffic is literally going around the world every time right. it goes to a website. Um, and it's like bouncing through all these different computers that might not be that fast because they're just like right, volunteer right. computers. And so it makes it like your browsing experience will slow down. It'll be like browsing the web in like 2007. Yeah, I've used it. It is extremely slow. It's painful yeah. if you're doing anything with video or anything. Exactly. Like video, yeah. you can't do real-time stuff for the most part. Music streaming, that kind of a thing, it's it's very inconvenient. So anyway, that's that's what you want if you want the real heavy-duty protection. Okay. Barring that, most browsers, well, so I think Safari and Firefox are the two biggest mainstream browsers that have committed to actually protecting people's privacy. 
yeah. Safari because I think they have a business interest in sort of making Google look bad. Right. And right. Apple doesn't do behavioral ad tracking as a business model. So right. they, they're not an advertising company. Exactly. They, they want to sell you hardware and they want to sell you apps, but they right. don't want you to be creeped out by what their hardware is doing. <laughs> um, so Safari has some pretty good protections. They've got some third-party cookie restrictions in place by default. They've got a lot of really good anti-fingerprinting things. Aside from Tor, which pretty much completely foils fingerprinting, Safari is probably the best anti-fingerprinting mm, browser. Okay. A big part of that, it's just because of the way that like Apple hardware is. Right. Like if you're running a Windows or an Android device, there are all these different vendors you could have, all this different software right. you could have installed. If you're running an Apple device, there's maybe like seven different possibilities for what's under the hood. And so right. that makes it a lot harder for fingerprinters to figure out, like to, to uniquely identify you and separate you from the rest of the Apple pack. Yeah, the uh, upside to Steve Jobs' tyrannical control over all things Apple, <laughs> hardware to software, is that, they, is that the Apple ecosystem is very homogenous. Exactly, exactly. And that is a good thing um, when it comes to countering fingerprinting. Right. Uh, Firefox has just put in a default tracker blocking feature which I think nowadays when you when you install Firefox for the first time, it automatically has this turned on and it will it will they, they have this curated list of domains that are known to belong to trackers. And it's curated by this third party company called Disconnect, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who they, they've been working on this for a long time. and They're good at what they do. So it just won't let your browser connect to those domains in a third party setting when you're in private browsing mode um, and when you're in regular browsing mode, it will block cookies to all of those domains. So that's that's pretty good. It blocks cookies. Cookies are the most popular tracking mechanism. If you want a little more protection, you can install Privacy Badger, which is mm -hmm. the uh, tracker blocking extension that EFF develops in Firefox. Unfortunately, you can't install it on Safari because their ecosystem is a little more restricted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I would say the, the second best option, if you want ease of use and convenience, to Tor is probably Firefox with Privacy Badger installed. Let me ask you really quick about that. So I know that you've worked on Privacy Badger, or at least yeah. worked with the people who worked on Privacy Badger. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it's something I recommend all the time, so my listeners are very familiar with it. But there are several other ad blocking and tracking blocking uh, extensions out there, and so I've got a couple of questions. So first of all, how does Privacy Badger differ from, say, AdBlock Plus or UBlock Origin? Or There is a disconnect one. There's Ghostry. There's, a, there's several yep. out there. Yeah. So how does Privacy Badger uh, differ from those and kind of... Just explain for the users, like how what is it doing? Like how does these things? How does it actually work? Sure, yeah. Um, so the thing that makes Privacy Badger unique is that it is a it's not a list based blocker. Like no one at EFF is going through and trying to figure out whether each domain is a tracker or not, and then putting it into a big list somewhere. Um, it learns. It's 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 what's called a heuristic based blocker. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite machine learning, but what it does is we have all these ways of identifying different kinds of tracking behavior. So it's like it looks for cookies with identifiers in them. It looks for canvas fingerprinting behaviors, like specific calls to specific JavaScript functions. And if it sees a resource from a third-party domain doing those things on three different like distinct websites, mm -hmm. then it decides that that domain is a tracker and it blocks it from there on. Does it share that? Like, does it upload that information to like the mothership so that other people can benefit from, from that as well, or is it purely local? It's purely local, yeah. So we don't we don't collect any data from uh, our users, even data that would help us <laughs> <laughs> block more things. Because yeah, it's 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 a privacy extension, and we want to be very upfront that like sure. it only yeah. all the data about your browsing history never leaves your browser. And you can you can check the source code. It's open source. Mm -hmm. Please contribute if you're a coder out there. Uh, we could always use the help. So we think there's a few benefits to that over the kind of list-based systems. A, it's like it makes it so that we don't have to keep up with the ecosystem, and we don't have to, or we don't have to keep track of every new tracking company out there. Right. If a if a new tracking company spins up, or if a existing company spins up a new domain, we don't have to like be on top of that, the browser extension will automatically learn about that as soon as it sees it. It also helps us kind of wrangle the long tail of, of smaller tracking companies. Mm -hmm. um, like we've run some tests where we, we scan the web, scan like a few thousand sites 
using Privacy Badger and see all of the uh, the tracking domains that it identifies, and then we'll compare that to like the disconnect list, and we'll be like, oh, we found like a hundred tracking domains that disconnected and that weren't on the disconnect mm. list, and um, and we talk to them sometimes. We'll be like, oh, here, I want to check these. <laughs> sure, yeah, why not? Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's adaptive and it's it's flexible. So now. Adblock, Adblock Plus is a very popular one, and it's been around a long time. And I actually interviewed one of the guys behind that a while back, and it's it's different than some of these other ones. Like uBlock Origin is, is another one I often recommend. Um, it's mm-hmm. another kind of an altruistic um, project from uh, a guy who's just keen on privacy. Now, Adblock Plus tried to kind of strike a balance, and I don't think a lot of people understand this, but there's... Like it doesn't block all ads, and there's a, they have this notion of like an acceptable ad, and and can you do you I don't know how 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 aware you are of how that works, but it's very different from how you guys work. Yeah, we're 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 aware of that. Yeah, so AdBlock Plus's model is so the, there's this um acceptable ads like partnership, I think that was started. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was started by by the people behind AdBlock Plus. Yeah, I think so. Um, and the idea is that like like AdBlock Plus's goal is to block ads. It is not to block tracking. Privacy Badger's goal right. is to block tracking. Ublock Origin's goal is to block ads and tracking. They are Adblock not the same Plus, thing, and a lot of people don't get that. Yep. A lot of people don't get that. Adblock Plus only wants to get rid of the visual clutter. Hmm. So what they decided was, oh, well, some ads are really bad, but some ads aren't as bad, and they're like, they're kind of subtle, and they don't annoy people that much. So we want to encourage ad tech companies to develop more of these acceptable quote unquote ads um, and serve those instead of the egregious ones. And so we're going to set up this list where if you are an ad tech company and you come to us and say, my ads follow your guidelines and here is some money to pay for, (laughs) pay for Mm -hmm. the right to be on this list, Adblock Plus will unblock those ads. Mm -hmm. And the problem from our perspective, I mean, there are several problems from my perspective, but <laughs> yeah. the biggest one is that nothing about what makes an ad acceptable has to do with tracking. Right. Um, it's just about like visual clutter. And so, so these like Google can track, can serve acceptable ads that track you as much as they want, as long as they're not like using blinky text and um, <laughs> right. showing lewd images. <laughs> uh, right. So one of the other uh technologies that there's a couple other like hardware technology solutions that you mentioned um well actually the one in particular was pie hole and uh that might be a little beyond the audience but we'll start with that and and i I mentioned to you uh, this winston privacy thing have you i don't know if you had a chance to look at that but talk to us a little bit about these kind of hardware turnkey solutions sure yeah um so pie hole is this cool kind of system so uh it it uses it acts as a DNS server. I'm not sure how much of your audience is familiar with DNS. <laughs> We've talked about it in the past, but so let's assume we understand basically what DNS is. Okay. So keep going. So the way it works is it replaces, you set it up as your DNS server. It runs in your house. It can run on a Raspberry Pi. That's why it's called Pi Hole. Mm-hmm. And every time any device that's on your home network makes a request, first it has to make a DNS query. It has to say like, all right, I want to go to this domain. Tell me what the IP address for that domain is. And Pihole has a list of domains that it has classified as trackers. And anytime one of your devices makes a DNS request, it'll just say like, nope, can't do it, sorry. <laughs> and so it's a little more like coarse grained than some mm-hmm. things like, than like browser extensions because browser extensions can actually look into encrypted traffic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. extract cookies and do like more advanced analysis on what's going on in your browser. Pihole can't do that. All it can do is say, like, is this domain allowed or not? Okay. But what's cool about it is, so it's like, it's not a replacement for a tracker blocker like Privacy Badger or uBlock Origin, but it's a supplement because it can filter traffic that's coming from your smart TV or your smart watch mm-hmm. or your fridge or whatever. Right, right. Like, devices that you usually have very little control over how they work, the Pihole can, can stop the majority of the tracking that's coming from those kinds of things. And those things do track you. Make them... <laughs> uh, yes. They, anything with an internet connection is probably tracking you. <laughs> so what about Winston Privacy? I don't know if you have a chance to look at that one. Yeah. So I looked at their website. I was, I was really interested in what you sent about it. So I'm not sure totally how it works. It seems like the same kind of a thing as Pi-hole, where you install right. it in your network. It's a little box. 
this one's not open source, so they ch they charge for the service. Right. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it also does some other stuff that I'm not like it, it talks about doing analysis on cookies and that kind of a thing. I'm curious if you know how that works. Uh, we talked about it. I actually had the, the 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 guy on the show. We didn't get into too the technical details, but uh, yeah, it does sound like it has some uh, some of the heuristic stuff in it too. And one of the other really interesting things is it's got kind of this mesh, almost like this Tor thing. Right, going on. right. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, that's really cool. So it's it's it does the thing where like before the traffic actually goes to the internet, it routes through your Winston box and it routes through like some other random person's Winston box, so right. that they can't actually figure out that's coming from your house. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And yeah, so the cool thing about both these things, I think, and what might appeal to some of the people in the audience, especially some of the people that feel technically overwhelmed, and I'm sure this episode has probably put them into a tizzy, but um, <laughs> is that they're turnkey appliance solutions. I mean, you got you basically just plug these things in, and then they, you, you don't have to know anything about what they do. They just kind of sit there and work. Yeah, um, yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So that 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 could be very appealing, I think. Yep. All right, so let's move on real quick and let's talk about mobile phones and uh, what, if anything, we can do to limit some of the tracking on mobile phones. We talked about the resetting of the ad IDs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What other kind of things might we do on our mobile phones to help protect our privacy? Biggest thing is just uh, checking your settings. Check which apps have which permissions. Realize that every app has permission to use the internet on your phone and every mm -hmm. app has permission to access your ad ID. So if you don't trust it, like, go through, audit your apps, see which ones you actually need. And if you don't need something, and especially if it has something like location permissions, you yes. should consider revoking those permissions or just removing it from your device altogether. Right. Yep. There are other like settings that kind of change every operating system version, so we didn't get too much into detail, but like you can, you can change how apps are able to access location in the background, how, like whether on Android you can change what kinds of things Google is allowed to link to your account. Mm. You can you can make it so that like you are allowed to use Google Maps in a way that's not associated with your Google account. And mm. I do that. And it's kind of a pain because like it won't let you save your home or work address. <laughs> wow. Oh, is that that new incognito mode they were talking about? Oh, there's that too. I'm actually not sure. I think incognito mode is a way to do it like temporarily. So oh, it's like okay. you if you're normally logged into your account on Google Maps, you can go into incognito and it won't for as long as that's activated, it won't associate that stuff hmm. with your account. Okay. Um, but like, you can also just not associate it with your account at all. And Google still collects that information, and it is re-identifiable if they care, but they say that they won't do it, and so um, hmm. it's, that's often the best you can do. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of settings on both operating systems um, that control what permissions apps can access and um, how data can be shared in the background. Beyond that, there are... Um, at least on iOS, there are apps you can download that act as sort of tracker blockers for apps like Disconnects. Hmm. The company that I mentioned earlier makes a app for iOS. I think it's a paid app, but um, it basically does the same kind of filtering on all the traffic coming from your device. Hmm. Unfortunately, on Android, uh, Google's developer policy prevents people from <laughs> building tracker blockers. <laughs> sure. Um, because it says like, oh, you can't change the content that's displayed in other apps or something like that. So, mm. yeah, I'd say if you really have a privacy, probably just avoid Android. Yeah. What about VPNs? VPNs are interesting. In theory, VPNs are good uh, because they make it so that you cannot be tracked based on your IP address because all of your traffic goes through this third-party server and it's merged with a bunch of other traffic. Mm -hmm. But... VPNs are, it's, it's very tricky. We don't, EFF never recommends particular VPNs mm. because you're putting an awful lot of trust in whatever yes. company you decide to use as your VPN. Right, yeah. So I will say affirmatively, you should not trust free VPNs mm -hmm. because it's, I mean, the cliche at this point, if <laughs> you don't, if you're not the customer, you're the product. Yep, I um, say that all the time, yep. And so... Yeah, there. I mean, there and there's tons of news stories about various free VPNs being caught selling egregious amounts of user data uh, to egregious yeah. people. So, yeah. um, just as a general rule of thumb, avoid those. Paid VPNs. Some of them are good. Some of them are less good. Um, but you really just have to do the research for yourself. I mean, there are some like good tech reporters who kind of keep up to date on this stuff. But yeah, I, I don't want to tell people to. Right. It's, it's it's just really hard to keep track of. You know, it it's is. like. And companies get bought and sold and management yes, changes right. and privacy policies change. And so 
if you're going to do that, it's, it's not a bad idea, but you'd have to be very vigilant about it. And you have to recognize that you're just kind of concentrating the risk in one place. Right. You're basically changing your trust in your ISP or the Wi-Fi provider to the VPN provider. Exactly. Uh, one one industry trend that I've seen recently that I, that I have some hope on is that a lot of these companies are now because because they're companies and they're corporate and they've got intellectual property. Uh, you know, there is a certain amount of opaqueness to you know what they do as a business, especially if they you know make money. But like Tunnelbear and some of these other ones uh, are starting to do independent third party audits. Hmm. Uh, where they'll bring third parties in and and say uh, to, to back up their privacy claims of we don't do any logging or uh, and all these things and actually have them come in and re- and review maybe under NDA you know the code and things like that and so it kind of strikes this balance between we're a company that wants to make money that has intellectual property we don't want to just give it out open source but we'd like to kind of prove to you in some sort of an independent way that we're doing what we say we do mm-hmm. um, so hopefully that will become more prevalent and we'll at least get some sort of you know independent analysis uh that these guys are actually doing what they say they're doing with their privacy yeah yeah definitely that's that's a step in the right direction so last up and i know we've talked for a long time but um but last up what about broader legislative uh things what as a, as a citizen um of, of the u.s or whatever country you're in how can you lobby because obviously in the united states in particular we've we're really lacking in in any kind of laws around uh, data and privacy. And I think some are coming and maybe you can talk to some of the things that are on the horizon. And I know California just passed another law. So kind of where do things stand and, you know, how, if I want to push my, my representatives to, uh, to, to better guard my privacy, how might I go about doing that? Uh, I mean, get involved, like make this an issue that you vote on if you can. Mm-hmm. And so writing to your representative actually does help. Calling your representative helps if if they have a phone line that's open mm. and just just voting, voting based on the issue of privacy. And there there are some legislators who have really made this front and center on their agenda. Mm. Um, yep. Ron Wyden um, oh, yeah. is is a senator who's he's always like writing letters to companies that do yeah. bad privacy things. He's always pushing forward new privacy legislation. Yeah, he's done some great stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's some, and there there are several congressmen and uh, senators in the U.S. who have decided that this is something that they care about and this is something that they think their constituents care about. And so, support those people. Um, I mean, unfortunately, it's like uh, it is hard and it can feel impossible sometimes for normal people in America to get involved with the legislative process. Um, but I mean, that's what EFF is for, too. <laughs> yeah, right. We do lobbying as part of our, our program work. And so donate to EFF or donate Absolutely, to ACLU yeah. or yeah. donate to one of the organizations that is lobbying on users' behalf um, in Capitol Hill. Yep. And uh, you know, Epic and uh, Center for Democracy Technology. There are several. And I'll, I'll make mm-hmm. sure I put Yeah, some there's a whole bunch there. of them. Yeah, I don't want to yep. start naming them because I'll leave people <laughs> out. But <laughs> right. we have a lot of allies in this space. We work with coalitions a lot. So what is the what is the status of any privacy legislation? I know uh, maybe talk a little bit about the CCPA, the, Cal- the recent California legislation that's going to go in effect I think January, mm-hmm. um, and anything yep. else like that. Is, it, is there anything in the in the pipeline? Yeah. So uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act is probably the biggest single piece of privacy legislation that's hit the U.S. in a long, long time. It's a California specific law, but it is going to because California is so big and so many companies are located right. here. It's going to change the way that most of the internet works in America, I would say. Right, I'd be surprised right. if people in other states don't see the benefits from it. And so it's it's a good start, I will say. It's not everything that we want from a privacy law, but it is much better than nothing, and it's going to be really good like groundwork for us to build on. So the two main things that it does is, it, first, it gives people the right to opt out of having their data sold. Um, <laughs> So you can That's go awesome. to any company that has your data and you can make a request either in writing or using an electronic signal like DNT um, and say, I do not want you to sell my data. And they have to respect that. Hmm. Um, and now there's this force of law, right? It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and sell is defined pretty broadly in the law. So like it's not just exchanging your data for money. It's also exchanging your data for other valuable considerations. Mm-hmm. And so that means things like, yeah, they, they can't give your data to advertisers as part of the ad bidding process 
because mm. then they will be receiving money later on at some other point in the process, even though they're not directly selling it, you know? Yep. And the, so that's the, that's the first thing that it does. The second thing that it does that's really important is it gives people the right to access the data that companies have about them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so any company that's covered by the law, which is most, most companies with any kind of internet presence, any personal data that it has about you, it has to give that to you if you fill out an access request. And it's not totally clear how those access requests are going to work yet. I think that's still kind of, there's going to be some kinks to be worked out, but this should bring, bring a huge amount of transparency to a lot of the yeah. shadowy parts of this industry. Like, you'll be able to go to a data broker and say, I'm Bennett Cyphers. What do you know about me? And they have to comply. Um, or you can go to any of these ad tech companies and be like, what, what do you know about my browsing history? Um, and I that's can't wait be, that's, to see the output of some of those I things. I know. It's, it's going to be really exciting for us as advocates because we can just go through and start like this. It's really great, actually, in combination with the Vermont law. It's really serendipitous mm-hmm. because now we can just go down that <laughs> list and be like, hey, right. what do you have? What do you have? What do you have? <laughs> right. There's, there's also a right to delete. I'm hesitant mm-hmm. to talk that up too much because it's kind of narrow. Like there are a mm-hmm. lot of ways like you can. You, so now you can ask any company to delete your data. But if they have if they can come up with any like business purpose for which they need the oh. data, then they don't have to delete it. <laughs> OK, but, you know, big, it's, big a loophole, yeah. <laughs> it's a start. It's a start. And so anyway, yeah, that's that's uh, overall. It's, we're really excited about it and we're going to work on trying to improve it uh, as time goes on. That's a big part of EFF's agenda for 2020 is trying to push through bills in the California legislature that will strengthen um, CCPA and build on it. Well, and you said, as you mentioned, it, hopefully it will uh, have ripple effects to the rest of us. And it, California is so huge, and there's so many companies that are located there. And I, I usually, the analogy I usually make is um, car emission standards. You know, California led the way for a long time in making their pollution restrictions much higher than the rest of the, than the country. And, you know, when Ford makes a car, they're not going to make one for California and one for the rest of the country. Right. So we all ended up benefiting from that because even though California was the, the, the state that you know, mm-hmm. had, the, had the restriction, mm-hmm. we all did benefit because they're not going to do two different things. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And, and it's the same thing we're seeing with GDPR. Right. Right. Like, I think it's a little bit easier for companies to like split out their products, one for Europe, one for America. But Already, there's a lot of companies have reined in doing certain kinds of tracking or whatever because they're afraid of getting sued in Europe. And I think right. we're just going to see even an even stronger effect with the California law. Well, uh, Bennett, this was fantastic and so much information. And we, do, we just scratched the surface of the report. So I will definitely <laughs> recommend that people go in and actually read the full uh, the, read the full article. And, of course, we'll have uh, links to it in the show notes and uh, in the Twitter feed when we do that. So. Thanks so much for coming on and explaining all this to this. We'll definitely have to have you back because there's so much we didn't cover. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Ben. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, look forward to talking to you again. Big, big thanks again to Bennett Cyphers for coming on the show, especially on really short notice. I saw that article of his and I immediately reached out to EFF and especially with the holidays coming. I was really happy to get Bennett in before the, before the, the holidays uh, rolled in. And uh, it turned out to be a really, really great interview. Lots of information there. So I know it got a little bit technical, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, I said in the preface to the first one, you know, don't let that get you down. You know, don't let that, don't let that throw you off. The main thing to take away from this is just how unbelievably complicated and ubiquitous this economy is for your data. You know, all the people buying, selling, and trading, moving this stuff around, it's just its just amazing. So, you know, there are a lot of details we got into there. Don't worry about those. The, you know, the main thing to take away, again, is your data is, is really, really valuable, uh, and they're doing some really shady stuff with it. And, you know, we've got to figure out some way around that. And, you know, so glad that Ben you know, gave us some ideas for ways to curb some of this tracking. Uh, and actually, Data Privacy Day is coming up soon in uh, January, and I'm, I'll be doing some more about that. But if you just want to go to my website at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com uh, and search for my privacy guide, uh, which I'll be updating here soon uh, for Data Privacy Day. But uh, it's going to have some really good info- information in there that you can kind of add on to what we talked about here today. I want to follow up on a couple of things we talked about in the interview. Um, uh, we've said often on this show that, you know, if the product is free, then, you know, more than likely you are the product. Uh, and you know, that, that's a, that's a clever phrase and that's not a hundred percent true. Uh, and you know, you've got to still take things with a little bit of grain of salt because there are a lot of companies that have a free tier of a product, uh, that is supported by for pay tiers of their product or other, other products that they sell. 
Uh, so, you know, so really got to look at the company as a whole and see what their business model is and see how they make money. And uh, which is not to say that, you know, for the free versions, they're not still trying to monetize those free versions by tracking you. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely a strike against any product if it's if it's free, especially if the only thing they offer is free. Uh, we talked about a vast and AVG security, and they were kind of busted recently for installing kind of even without telling you some web browser extensions uh, when you installed their antivirus products and those extensions were tracking everything you did on the web i'm sure making money off that somehow i mean again they've, they've got to have a business model <laughs> they've got people to pay so you know if the company isn't making and you know doesn't look like it has enough money coming in from other sources then you might wonder if they're not making money off of you in ways that you don't want them to be doing that of course, an obvious exception to this would be organizations like the EFF and Tor and others that create these extra special tools like the Tor Browser and Privacy Badger and provide them for free because they make money off of donations, which, you know, hint, hint, these guys need money. So, you know, feel free to hit up the EFF.org website and find their donate button and shoot those guys a little bit of money. They're doing some really great work on your behalf, whether you pay them or not. Um, but anyway, did my point being that free, that's why I said you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. You know, anything that's absolutely free, yeah, you know, be careful what it is and make sure you look at it. But there's some exceptions like uh, the EFF and some other companies that provide these things for free. And even some developers, you know, uBlock Origin is just created by a guy uh, who wants to, he doesn't want to make money. He just wanted to protect people's privacy. And that's kind of his mission. So, um, you know, there are exceptions to that rule. And speaking of Tor Browser. Uh, that is something that uh, I think you might want to give a shot. Uh, just go download it. Uh, it's free in a good way. It's based off Firefox, so it should seem mostly familiar. And if you ever wanted to do some super anonymous browsing, and you know maybe this is not something you do every day because it is slow. Uh, as we said, it is slow. You're not going to be watching Netflix on this or YouTube or uh, any of those kind of things because it's just really not built for real-time audio or video. But if you wanted to you know, maybe search on a kind of a weird medical condition or some sort of a social aspect or research into some topics that maybe you wouldn't want associated with you, uh, you want to be able to do that privately, then Tor Browser is the way to go. I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can also just go and search on Tor Browser, uh, T-O-R, and uh, find the download page and just give it a shot. We talked about having some privacy plugins like uh, Privacy Badger. Uh, I've mentioned uBlock Origin many times on this show. There are some other ones. Um, I would, as we've talked about in the show, I'd probably stay clear of AdBlock Plus. It's not really doing what you think it's doing. And even if it's blocking ads, it's not necessarily stopping the tracking. So if tracking is, is your concern, which hopefully it is, after the, certainly after listening to these two interviews, you're going to want something that actually blocks tracking. So uh, one thing I did want to mention is it's okay to have more than one of these uh, at a time. So for instance, I run Privacy Badger and uBlock Origin uh, together. And Firefox actually has some built-in protections as well. It's not ideal. There are some inefficiencies with that. But I mean, at the end of the day, they're all trying to do the same thing. And if I don't really care which one of them blocks the tracker, as long as the tracker gets blocked. So uh, I would certainly say it's okay to have those two in particular uh, installed together. And they probably complement each other. So next week will we'll be a news show. There's actually been a lot of stuff happening, so I definitely need to cover some news bits. Uh, but it's also going to be right before New Year's, so I may throw in some kind of fun New Year's Eve resolution-y kind of stuff. And of course, if you just subscribe now, you'll be guaranteed to get all these episodes. And with the holidays coming up, I know uh, it's probably pretty last minute. <laughs> By the time you hear this, it's probably two days till Christmas. But, you know, if you're still looking for last-minute gifts, or maybe if you're going to get some Christmas money and spend it on yourself... You might want to still check out my best and worst gift guide for 2019. You can find that on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, that kind of walks through some of the, you know, from a privacy and security angle, some products that are popular that may or may not be actually good for your privacy. So just two more quick things before we go. Uh, if you've bought the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, and have some feedback for me, uh, there's a link actually, or not a link, there's an email address in the book that uh, I mentioned for feedback on the book. And I think it's feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Um, it's in the book, in a, one of the early chapters. I'm going to be working on, uh, probably coming up in the springtime, hopefully for mid or late summer release, uh, the fourth edition of this book. And I know there's, you know, obviously there's lots of, you know, images and things like that that need to be updated. These products change all the time. So I'm going to have to update all the screenshots. And of course, it will be updated for the latest and greatest Windows 10 and uh, Mac OS operating system, Catalina. Honestly, at this point, I'm probably going to just drop out most of the stuff for Windows 7 and Windows 8. Those really aren't supported anymore. If you're still running those, well, honestly, you need to be updated into Windows 10. I know Windows 7 was fine. It worked just great, but, you know, it's not supported. You're not going to get security updates. 
so from that perspective, you really need to update to Windows 10. So anyway, uh, if you've got feedback, either, you know, things you, let's say topics that you want to see covered in the book that aren't there now, or maybe topics that are there that you think I should expand on, or, you know, maybe you've got some constructive criticism on how I approach some of the topics, whatever. If you've got feedback, uh, now's kind of the time to do it. So you can send me a note at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, and I will collect that feedback and I will keep it in mind as I create the fourth edition, which hopefully will happen in the next six to eight months. And finally, uh, if you would like to support my efforts, uh, you know, a lot of time and effort goes into the podcast and the newsletter and the blog and such, and uh, do a lot of research every week for all of those things, trying to bring this stuff to you. If you'd like to support me more directly, uh, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Just search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Patreon's kind of set up to do a, an ongoing, like a subscription, kind of an ongoing thing, you know, but if you want to do like a one shot, that's fine too. You just have to sign up for the thing and then just remember to cancel it uh, after your first month or whatever you want to do. So that'll do it. I uh, hope everybody has a wonderful holiday season, a very safe holiday season. Uh, do beware. There's a lot of scams that come around this time of year. So, you know, if something looks a little bit too good to be true or even too bad to be true, make sure you're giving that a solid look. And helping others to do the same. Uh, just, uh, you know, don't <laughs> just beware. And I hope you all get some time off and have a nice break and get time to spend with family and friends. And uh, next week we'll be back with a uh, with a New Year's Eve episode. And until then, of course, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Mm-hmm.